Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. That was a special version of the theme, a cover version I found on Instagram a while back, performed by my fellow Brooklynite, Christian Kale. I was flattered and charmed, and there it was, with his permission. The original, by the way, is Washisha J, Our Beginning, by Obo Adi, from the album Pieces of Africa by the Kronos Quartet. A non-standard theme, but a standard pair of guests today. Harrison Stetler will explore the causes of the riots in France in late June and early July, and the complexity scientist Peter Turchin will deploy some models to explain why the U.S. is heading for a crisis and possible collapse. First, France. I'm a bit late getting to this, but that's one of the challenges of a weekly show. In what sounds like a very American story, on June 27th, a French cop shot and killed a 17-year-old named Nahil Merzu after a routine traffic stop in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. Unlike the U.S., however, the word suburbs, or banlieues in French, is used to describe zones of deprivation located outside central cities that are home to the country's poorest, mostly immigrants from France's former colonies in Africa and their descendants. Not all the suburbs are poor, should be pointed out. Some are quite rich, in fact. But banlieue has nonetheless come to signify those places of isolation and impoverishment. The shooting led to days of riots across the country and a vicious crackdown by the cops and courts. Why? What social conditions prompted the violence? Here to answer that is Harrison Stetler, a Paris-based journalist who's written for Jacobin, The Nation, and The New York Times. He teaches at the University of Nanterre, the suburb where Nahel Marzu was killed. Harrison Stetler. These riots um, are a response to a very long-standing set of grievances. What set the scene for um, this explosion? What really sort of made this explode is is the fact that there is just documentary footage, evidence of sort of the indiscriminate, almost sort of summary execution nature of what happened on June 27th in Nanterre. France, like many other countries, unfortunately, is no stranger to police violence. Uh, there has been an uptick of shootings in recent years much of which, when it's like, not recorded, dissipates into the background and just sort of becomes another news item. Uh, just in June, there were two other police shootings. There have been more investigations into them since Nihil's death. But without sort of the, the, the concrete video evidence that came out in the, I guess, hours after uh, his shooting, uh, it's possible that this would have just been another, as the French say, a fait divers or a sort of news item. As you just mentioned, the anger that brought thousands and thousands of young people onto the streets throughout the country for several nights of intense clashes with the police, rioting, looting of stores, um, arson attacks on public buildings. That's obviously much of a sort of a much deeper anger than the death of one young man. And so I guess that anger is built off a host of host of injustices uh, that specifically affect France's minority communities, whether it's discrimination in terms of access to housing, uh, access to sort of steady employment, or just daily disregard and, and harassment uh, by, by the French police forces in a lot of these communities. It, it's hard to really, I guess, put a concrete figure because actually in France, it's difficult to conduct actual research on racism. There are laws actually that stipulate that you're not allowed to actually label people as belonging to such and such an ethnic group. This is the, the right-wing dream of colorblindness. <laughs> exactly. To actually conduct serious research about the problem of racial discrimination in French society. That being said, there are some figures which give a certain idea of the scale of this problem. For example, the report that a lot of people have been citing in press coverage of, of what's happened over the last few weeks is is a report from the the, the rights defender, which is so this is a, a public watchdog. The current rights defender was appointed by Macron, the, the current French president. And this report from 2017 says that sort of young men who are identifiable as black or from sort of North Africa, i.e. sort of Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, are something like 20 times more likely to face sort of a police search or, or an, ID, an ID check than white people or people of other ethnicities. I know France is unusually segregated geographically, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what's the, I think, uh, the geography, if you take the sort of geography of a lot of these riots and these protests over the last, or I guess which came to an end, I guess maybe early last week, it's it's in what are called sort of the banlieue, which this sort of 
it's difficult to translate into English. This refers to what we would, what we hear in U.S. political language as sort of the inner city, but these are sort of the the suburbs that were that ballooned in, I guess, the, in the in the post-war years, sort of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, with these massive modernist housing projects, the dream of post-war social democracy or what have you, which have become, I guess, these extremely isolated, impoverished communities that now house disproportionately families um, originating from immigration and their children. Much of the, the, the rioting has been in these communities, barring perhaps a city like Marseille, where much of the, I guess where I am actually right now uh, on vacation, but in Marseille, you have, you've had a lot of the, the clashes with police, a lot of the attacks on, on stores, on public institutions in the center of the city. But in Paris, for example, or in other French cities, it's really been concentrated in what are called, yeah, the bon dieu. The historical comparison on everyone's mind is sort of if you go back to 2005, when when there was also sort of a major revolt or wave of riots, what have you, uh, which was also kicked off by the death of, of of two young men of color in a police chase, and this set off some like three weeks of of intense rioting. There was actually a state of emergency was put in place, sort of giving special powers to state administrators, whether it's for things like issuing curfews and and stay-at-home orders and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but no, like in 2005, much of this rioting really was also concentrated in these extremely impoverished, targeting symbols of state power, whether it's sort of local town halls, police stations, something like 250 police stations were attacked by people over sort of the weekend of July, between sort of July 28th, uh, or June 28th, rather, uh, and July 1st and 2nd. So that's a massive figure. Over a thousand buildings were severely damaged. 5,000 cars were destroyed in fires. It is, I guess, one subject of debate in France is, and I guess sort of the pushback within these communities also is the I mean, it's the tragic element of it is that I mean these communities are already so heavily disadvantaged by the services provided by the French state or economic opportunities that exist uh, for people in these specific geographic areas, and one wonders will will the effort for reconstruction be done in the interest of these people or not, or will this even further uh, grow the the gap between these communities and and the rest of French society. Is this rage tied to any kind of larger political organization or agenda? One thing that strikes me as, I guess, an American in France is the gulf between much of the French political class and these communities. Uh, I mean, there are are very few and threadbare political ties between, no need to criticize the French right for not necessarily wanting to to speak for French immigrant communities, but even within sort of the left-wing parties uh, and these communities, the the ties and the, the trust is is really, really low. I mean, France Insoumise, the left-wing party, has tried to sort of more aggressively bridge this gap, but between French politics and these communities, there's a deep-seated distrust, which is built on the feeling of years of abandonment by these communities and political disappointment. More directly, if you were to think, what are the sort of deeper political forces? I mean, just to take Macron, sort of one debate of the last week has been how has Macron responded to, as the French say, the timeless question of the bon dieu. And if you sort of take the Macron of 2017 versus the Macron of the beginning of his second term, where we are right now, I mean, when he was elected to office, and obviously a, a big part of it is, this is, is rhetoric or or what have you. I mean, he, he came into office sort of on, and it actually performed quite well in this, in the, the bon dieu. He ran on a ticket of, of actually having some desire to approach the problem of police violence and reform, I guess, certain elements of, of French policing um, and encourage, I guess, economic development or what have you. I mean, obviously, again, this is, this is campaign rhetoric, but over five or six years, he really has fully diverted his energies towards the right-wing campaign against sort of separatism or communitarianism. He's had a number of opportunities to increase investment, to discuss uh, head-on, I guess, the question of police violence. And at each of these opportunities, he's retreated and he's passed major laws which have been used to attack sort of associations in these neighborhoods, whether it's sort of local activist groups. The French state or French politics today is somewhat reaping the sort of the, the outcome of its own sort of attempt to sort of draw a red line around uh, around these elements in French society, I would say. And now the response by the police and the courts um, uh, to these uh, riots has been absolutely vicious, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I spent last week 
two days with a journalist colleague at one of the courthouses north of Paris in Bobigny. So this is the the main court in the Seine-Saint-Denis department, which is, I guess, synonymous in French media and political life with sort of the banlieue. This was sort of the scenes of some of the major riots in 2005 in the Paris area. This was also sort of the epicenter of some of the major major revolts of, uh, of last weekend. And we wrote a piece about this for Jacquemus, which came out this past weekend. What we saw in Bobigny and many reports documenting this elsewhere around the country is a industrialized form of justice, which is the justice minister last week said he wanted a systematic, firm and rapid response. So then you've had upwards of 400, I think we're maybe even approaching 500 people that have been sentenced to prison sentences. There have been 3,500 arrests, um, which, again, dwarfs the figures uh, from 2005. The response has been extremely firm. Um, and I mean, I think there's even not to... to I don't want to go sort of on a conspiratorial bent or whatever. There's, I think, some justification to say that in the in- initial sort of outpouring of anger in the first few days, part of sort of the government strategy was to to almost, I think, let sort of this anger explode to almost justify this extremely firm sort of state-centric response. Uh, 45,000 police officers were deployed starting from the evening of June 30th to July 1st, 45,000 Again, on Saturday and Sunday, uh, you had, I guess, basically the entire French right demanding a state of emergency. Macron, to sort of put on his Republican hats, was said, well, we're not going to go that far. Um, the, the sort of forces of order, the police uh, will be able to contain. Uh, but it was, it was a massive display of force. Largely, again, this, this I think, and this is going to be one of the sort of broader political takeaways from this crisis is, I mean, so much in French politics already is dragging further to the right. And I see very few outcomes from this other than Macron being forced further to to deal with sort of the right-wing opposition, whether it's on, I guess, policing and the whole rhetoric of law and order. I mean, over the last few months, there have been a series of sort of scandals around Macron's embrace of terms like sort of the insavaging or the decivilization of France because of petty criminality and, 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 and all sorts of sort of low-level street violence. And the way his presidency has gone since 2017, I guess I, 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 I to be honest, see no other way than, than this accelerating, uh, I guess, the, the larger tug of, of this presidency and French politics towards the right. One anecdote, which for me sums up much of what was extremely scary at the peak of the crisis last weekend. And perhaps you saw reports of this. I wrote a piece about it for Jackpit as well. Uh, on the night of June 30th, so this is after sort of two of the most intense nights of protesting, the majoritarian unions uh, representing the police forces issued this extremely incendiary press communique basically where they refer to the rioters as pests that need to be cleaned off the streets. They basically issue hardly concealed threats against the government, demanding, I guess, an appropriate judicial response targeting the protesters. I think also indicating that if the police officer who shot the fire that killed Nael is convicted, also this will lead to, in quote, resistance against the government. So, I mean, the police forces in France have become this extremely, extremely, extremely powerful actor. Obviously, that that as a phenomenon goes back many years and is almost structurally related to the nature of the police force in France as extremely centralized around the central states, um, disconnected from local communities or regions, as you have in the United States or Britain or other countries. Um, But also it's a symptom of just the way Macron has governed France since 2017, where you've seen a wave. I mean, as a journalist, I've, I've, I've been in France for for all of Macron's presidency. And, and I mean, the, the, the amount of sort of social revolts and social movements which have basically turned French politics on its head and demanded uh, or have led to the government demanding a, a sort of near constant mobilization of the police forces, uh, it's incredible. And so, I mean, the, the police unions are sort of coming home. They, 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 they want Macron to sort of pay the piper. And any sort of critique of, of the police forces is viewed by these actors as as a shot against their institution. Uh, so Macron almost has his, has his, he's not only politically has his hands tied in parliament with a minority governing coalition, which is basically required that he govern with the right-wing opposition. He's also, his hands are also sort of tied in crises like these by the sort of structural power that the police forces have acquired. I'm speaking with the journalist Harrison Stetler. 
The political sympathies of the cops are quite far right, I understand, but what does that mean exactly? Marine Le Pen? Or there are forces to her right that make her look almost moderate now? I guess the, the statistics I've seen are something like sort of two-thirds of active members of the police forces are are estimated to have voted for Le Pen in recent presidential elections in the first round. Um, so I guess that gives some, something of an idea of the the political loyalties and ties within within this sector of French society. As far as sort of the general field on the right, I mean, it's a, what's the term, a embarrassment of riches i guess sort of thing. The, if you're a, if you're a french conservative today or if you're a, a right-wing operative in france you have i guess three maybe four forces obviously you have officially not officially on the right you have emmanuel macron who's i guess most powerful ministers namely the finance minister bruno le maire and more importantly gerald Darmanin, the interior minister are all transplants from the former center-right party les républicains uh, and I guess since 2017, as I said earlier, Macron has just only increasingly gone further and further to the right, whether it's on uh, sort of cultural questions, um, the relationship between the state and Islam in France, for example. And then I guess within the parties that are officially classified in French politics as the right wing forces, you have, I guess, the shell of the former Gaullist center right, the, the Republicans who are, I guess, are a shadow of their, or their former selves with uh, sort of a weak, weak showing in the National Assembly. That being said, they've sort of, despite their, I don't have the figures right on me, I think maybe they're in the, I want to say, sort of in the 50s in terms of seats in, in, the, in, in parliaments. They control the Senate, the upper, the upper house, which has made them sort of institutionally quite powerful. But because of, again, Macron's minority position or sort of minority-majority uh, coalition in power in the lower house, they've sort of been able to act as kingmakers. They're, I guess, the votes that Macron needs in the National Assembly to get legislation passed. I guess over one sort of, I think, key question in the months ahead for if this government is able to sort of survive, since the retirement reform crisis, there's been talk of, will Macron select a new prime minister? Will there be a dissolution of parliament? And I guess the test of that will be, how long is the center-right willing to prop the government up and not vote a vote of confidence. I think one test for that will be a likely sort of new immigration bill, the umpteenth reform to French uh, or tightening of France's immigration system, which is expected for sort of September, October, I think, to sort of expand the picture of the rights. So obviously, Marine Le Pen. So in last June, June 2022's parliamentary elections, she, her party, the National Rally, got 88 seats, a record for, for the far right uh, in the Fifth Republic. And the trajectory is only up for them, unfortunately. They've sort of been positioned by people on Macron's team, by the entire, I guess, French media as the one and only opposition to the Macronists. If I can bring things back to the left, I guess, related to this question of, sort of the normalization of Marine Le Pen's national rally. It's been shocking and extremely revealing to see the way, I guess, that the left has been treated by Macron's government. In a situation where there are essentially three blocks in French politics, the left-wing Noops coalition, Macron's sort of centrist bloc, and I guess this split right between the old Gaullist Republicans and Marine Le Pen's national rally. The Macronist strategy has been to, to essentially normalize Marine Le Pen and the national rally and to claim at every opportunity that the French left, and namely sort of the leader, uh, the leading force, La France Insoumise, and its sort of hereditary leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, are sort of beyond the pale of Republican legitimacy. Through the Nahel crisis uh, over the last two weeks, I mean, this has been explicitly said, saying that uh, where you've had the Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, saying that the Mélenchonists, the left-wing La France Insoumise, the Noops Alliance are beyond the pale of sort of Republican politics, which, again, that's, I guess, needs a bit of historical qualification. When in France, there's this term called the Republican Front, sort of a force that is a Republican institution, a Republican political actor. Historically, what did that mean? That meant forces that were in favor of the Republic, in favor of democratic institutions, and then the far right. The far right was historically the enemy of the Republic and in French politics, the Republican forces allied against the National Front when it was under Jean-Marie Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's father. And today, I guess Macron and 
the entire right and much of the French press are reapplying that same rhetoric to essentially say that the leading left-wing force is, is beyond the pale of Republican politics, which is just extremely revelatory of the sort of undertow just pulling France to the right. Would Le Pen be that different than Macron in a situation like this? I mean, has he become so directed by the right that uh, there's just not much difference between them anymore? <laughs> That's a question that many people ask themselves. <laughs> That's a question I've asked myself many times. But I, yeah, uh, when I arrived in France in 2017, I think I was, you know, one of those sort of starry-eyed American progressives or or leftists who couldn't conceive of of. Anyone refusing, you know, to, to, to block the far right. Um, and these last six years of, of Macron's government have, have really given a few blows to that certainty on my end. I guess, I don't know if it's naive to say it could always be worse, I guess. Um, just taking, for example, that, that the, the, the communicated press by the police unions, given if you take sort of the, the political liberties and the, political role that these actors have taken for themselves under, I guess, an ostensibly centrist government. I, I would just be, I'd be very scared to think about the, the confidence with which they would assert themselves as a political actor under a far run, under, under an explicitly far right government. So I, I guess that's, that's a way of sort of dancing around that question. Um, I guess the question, could things get any worse, should always be answered yes. Yes, of course. Yeah, I guess that, 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 that is what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's difficult to imagine someone working harder than Gérald Darmanin, however, so again, Macron's interior minister. It's difficult to imagine someone working as hard as he has to deny the question of police violence, however. I mean, he's someone who could figure quite well in a, in a in a government under Marine Le Pen. Uh, I mean, he, he would obviously scoff at these at these words, but, but I mean, if you look, take someone, for example, like Gérard Darmanin, the interior minister, he's, he's, he's a figure who, as a young man at the beginning of his career, was embedded in, in sort of the ecosystem of, of far-right groupings in France, and so not political parties, but a lot of these sort of student clubs that provide sort of a pipeline historically to the national rally um, to Marine Le, Marine Le Pen's far-right force. So I don't want to say, I guess, yes, I guess my answer is it could be worse, but but um, but, Marine Le, but Macron is doing very, very, very little to remind people that it could be worse. That was the Paris-based journalist Harrison Stetler. You can find lots of his recent coverage of France on the Jacobin Magazine website, to which he's a prolific contributor. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of police state by the UK subs. Next, the imminent collapse of the US, or something like it. Peter Turchin is a project leader at the Complexity Science Hub Vienna. He's also a research associate at Oxford. His current specialty is a practice he helped found, cliodynamics, or cleodynamics if you prefer. This attempts to model human history in a way analogous to how, as he put it, evolutionary biologists treat the paleontological record. In his book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration, just out from Penguin, Turchin argues that the U.S. is in serious trouble, and he has the science to prove it. In a sentence, his argument is that mass immiseration caused by the upward distribution of wealth for the last three or four decades, combined with the overproduction of educated elites who can't find the employment and status they crave, are leading us to serious social crisis. Minus the aspiration to science, this is not a completely novel argument. 
Turchin makes an interesting argument, but I'm not persuaded that it requires all this science to make it. Judge for yourself. Peter Turchin. Let's start with a definition, cliodynamics, clio for history and dynamics. Um, and I've heard of cliometrics, but I hadn't heard of cliodynamics before. So what is it? And what uh, is a database you've been working on? It's uh, a science of history. If you want to understand the dynamics of human societies, both in the past and today, we need a more holistic approach that includes not only the economical mechanisms, but also everything, climate sociological mechanisms. We'll be talking about the elites and elite overproduction and many other things. Essentially, anything that we need to understand why societies experience periods of good internal peace and order and why do these periods inevitably come to an end in end times. And I'm sure you've heard the critique, uh, but I'd like to hear your response to it, that uh, history is just too varied across time and space to make generalizable laws of a mathematical model sort. Uh, What do you say to that? All sciences started that way. Before physics, people did not realize that you could study physical processes with the scientific method. Same thing with biology. And now we got around to doing history. The proof is in the pudding. By applying the scientific method, we can learn how much of theory is regular and how much is irregular. You uh, achieved some fame for predicting what uh, about uh, 2010, that things were just going to start going haywire around 2020. So uh, that's one in your favor, right? (laughs) And that, by the way, was not a prophecy. That was a scientific prediction. So what does it mean to do science? To do science means that we have multiple alternative explanations for some kind of a phenomenon. So in this particular case, we want to know why do societies get into these periods of social turbulence, political fragmentation, and things like that. And there are many different explanations for this. For the fall of the Roman Empire, one German historian uh, has gathered more than 210 uh, different explanations. In order to do science, we need to take those theories and pit them against each other. And how do we do that? We use data. So we empirically test uh, the predictions from different theories, and then we find out which predictions fare better. And that theory accordingly gains more degree of belief. Your thesis in a nutshell is that we've been in the U.S. Your book focuses in the U.S., but you have plenty of international data too, so I shouldn't just shouldn't say this is just about the U.S., but we're focusing on the U.S. here. We've seen the overproduction of elites uh, and the immiseration of the masses, which are leading to a potentially explosive situation. Uh, So what's been going on and where do you think this is going to lead? Yeah. So first of all, let me say that uh, the theory is general. Of course, each society is different. That has to be incorporated into the theory. We can talk about it. For example, different societies have different types of elites. The elites are recruited in different ways. But all complex societies organized as states that have been around for about 5,000 years, they all experience these periods of integrative periods, as you call the periods of internal order, and then disintegrative periods. And our analysis of large number of cases, uh, nearly 200 at this point and growing, shows that a shared feature in the road to a crisis is that these societies develop the problem of elite overproduction. So perhaps let me uh, explain what what I mean by elite overproduction. First of all, who are the elites? Simply put, small proportion of population that concentrates social power in their hands. Examples include the proverbial 1% in America, but it's a bit more complex than that. We'll unpack that later. Or uh, another example is the Mandarin class in Imperial China, or going back uh, further in time, military nobilities in France, England, and in other medieval uh, societies. The uh, key question we want to ask about the elites is how they are recruited and reproduced. There are always more elite wannabes. Well, the technical term for those is elite aspirants. Elite aspirants uh, who aspire for power positions. And some degree of competition is good. But uh, periodically, societies develop the problem when there are too many elite aspirants for those power positions. 
I use the game of musical chairs in my book to illustrate why this is a problem. It goes like the usual game, but instead of removing chairs, you keep the number of chairs, let's say 10, the same, but you increase the number of players. So initially, if you have a few more players than chairs, things are not so bad. But then when there are twice as many, three times as many players, four times as many players, you can imagine how this can lead quickly to chaos. Some of those players who are seeing that they are not going to get a power position, they are tempted to start breaking rules. Breaking rules is bad because that creates conflict and eventually rule breaking can and in the past typically does get to the point where you have violence between different elite factions. And if you have at the same time uh, the conditions that, that allow elites to recruit the population to their cause, that's essentially the recipe for a serious uh, rupture and uh, breakdown of order, perhaps leading to fairly catastrophic events such as civil wars, social revolutions, and things like that. Elites, let's uh, define that a bit. Are you talking about uh, the chairs of Fortune 500 firms and you know the senior partners of uh, important law firms or, or something broader than that? So there are four sources of social power. That's military, uh, political, economic, and ideological. In the United States, what we see is the ruling class is composed of uh, two types of elites, the economic elites, so the wealthy, and uh, the political elites. And in order to get into the political class, unless you have wealth, you need uh, credentials. And the most important credential is, of course, the law degree. A ruling class is essentially composed of the wealthy and people with advanced degrees, especially law degrees. In the United States, uh, there is no sharp boundary between elites and non-elites. And so in the book, I talk about if you look at the wealth, for example, you can think about the 10 percenters. These are people who have enough power over their own life. And then one percenters who typically have uh, real power over other people, and especially one percenters of one percenters who have the most uh, power. And then there is a similar power hierarchy in the political domain from the president down. The elites have been getting richer, and there's also been, at the same time, an immiseration of the masses. It's hard to measure that. It's really hard to do long-term income comparisons with real price indexes. There are a lot of technical challenges to doing that. But you use um, some physical measures. Could you describe that? And what, what's that telling us? In fact, the, what you call uh, immiseration is dynamically related to elite overproduction because of the operation of the wealth pump. The wealth pump is the perverse wealth pump that pumps uh, riches from the workers to the economic elites. It's important to note that wealth pump does not always operate. If it did, then we would only have the wealthy and everybody would be completely destitute. But in, in reality, the operation of the wealth pump is fairly cyclic. There are periods when it does work and when it doesn't work, the numbers of wealthy and their wealth actually declines. You can talk about specific historical examples of that, but that was, for example, the Great Compression from the 1930s to 1980 in the United States. So what we want to know, we want to measure during what periods, let's say, popular immigration was increasing and during which periods it was decreasing. It turns out that health indicators are closely correlated with economic well-being, as you would imagine. One way to measure that is to look at life expectancies. So in the United States, for example, the life expectancy has been declining since 2017, even before COVID. But another measure is the average population height. This turns out to be also a very sensitive indicator of immigration. And it happens that we have, we have that human skeletons actually are quite well preserved. So you have skeletons going back thousands of years. And so what anthropometric historians have done is they measured those skeletons and they have aggregated the data. And so we can actually follow the ups and downs of well-being in European populations, specifically since the skeletons refer to the Europeans, all the way from the Roman times, essentially. So we can 
trace how during the later Roman Empire, when there were some individuals had huge, obscenely huge wealth, and most of the population was very poor, that's when we see their average heights of uh, the population declining by uh, three, four, or even five centimeters, depending on the region. And then paradoxically, when the Roman Empire collapsed, after some period of very intense uh, warfare, life has become better for the common people. And suddenly their heights increased by three or four centimeters. And so essentially, as we look through the 2000 years of European history, there were a number of those periods of uh, integrative phases followed by disintegrative phases. And the average population height metrics follow those cycles and they can tell us when things are getting bad for common people and when they're getting better. And Americans used to be the tallest people in the world, but no longer. Yeah, in the in the 18th century, uh, United States, of course, we are talking about the um, European settlers and their children and grandchildren, because unfortunately they committed uh, a serious genocide against Native Americans. But those uh, European farmers who moved in the 17th and 18th century, they had extremely high measures of quality of life. They had huge families and they were very tall. They ate uh, very good balanced diets. And uh, as a result of that, they were really the tallest people in the world at that time. And then, interestingly enough, during the 19th century, when the wealth pump was turned on, the height, the average height of native-born Americans declined quite substantially by a couple inches, in fact, by several centimeters. I'm speaking with Peter Turchin, author of End Times from Penguin Press. We had um, what you describe as a period of pretty intense instability, turmoil, conflict from roughly 1830 to 1930. Then the New Deal led to a new social contract, which then broke down. Could you flesh out that history for us? Yes, this is a very good example because you can contrast. So as I was saying just a minute ago, starting roughly speaking in the uh, early 19th century, around 1830s or so, their population height has declined. And the reason was that economic uh, well-being of people started to decline. This, is, this was a period of early industrialization, so the economy started growing quite rapidly. And the fruits of the economy, instead of being divided fairly between workers and capitalists, uh, instead went to the economic elites, to the owners and managers of uh, businesses. In addition to popular immiseration uh, in this pre-Civil War period, we see a huge elite overproduction. The numbers of new millionaires increased tenfold between 1830s and uh, 1860. And most of those newly wealthy people were in the North, especially Northwest, the old Northwest. And they, in fact, became the counter-elites. They became the organizers of events that eventually led to civil war. Because they essentially what they did, they overthrew the antebellum ruling class, which was the plantation owners, the slave owners, the so-called slaveocracy, together with Northeastern merchants. So this was the first period uh, when all those factors that we have identified, they were working very strongly in generating instability, and that led to uh, the uh, bloodiest uh, war in uh, American history, which killed 600,000 people. Then what happened was that as a result of the Civil War, the old ruling class was overthrown, and that took care of the elite overproduction problem for a while. But because the wealth pump continued to operate, the wages of workers continued to lag behind the growth of economy. So more and more new wealthy people were created. And by the 1920s, the United States was in another revolutionary situation, which was quite similar to 1850s. So this was a period of, again, a big increase of a variety of instability indicators really bloody uh, race riots across many cities, violent um, labor strikes, uh, 
in a little civil war in West Virginia. 10,000 miners armed with rifles were fighting it out with sheriff deputies. And um, the campaign by Italian anarchists. So the elites, the ruling elites at that point in the United States became very concerned, in fact, frightened. They were really worried that there would be some kind of a Bolshevik revolution. And there was enough people who still remembered civil war. And therefore, part of that historical memory also helped to discipline the thinking of the elites. And so the one section of the elites led by Franklin Delano Roosevelt persuaded the rest of the elites that it is better to have reforms from above rather than revolution from below. So the difference between these two revolutionary situations was the, the first one in the 1850s was resolved with the bloody civil war, but the second one in the 1920s was resolved by the policies that started to be implemented during the progressive era, so the first two decades of the 20th century. And then they were set in stone by the New Deal. They essentially stopped the wealth pump by giving workers more power to organize and bargain with employers by imposing a minimum wage and increasing it so it grew faster than inflation and by taxing themselves at a remarkable rate. Even in early 1960s, the top tax rate was over 90%. Can you imagine it? Now it's unimaginable that 90% of what was earned by a person who earns, let's say, a million or more was given away to the state. So these two examples are very good, uh, and they also illustrate the more general patterns we see in our analysis of hundreds of previous societies, that a violent collapse is not inevitable. It is possible. There are other examples, such as the, the Chartist period in UK during the middle 19th century, and a few others when the elites managed to avoid revolution. So the British Empire was, for example, the only large European state that escaped the revolutions of 1848 because, again, of the actions taken by pro-social segments of the elites that headed it off. So the COVID era, some of the economic features, some of the economic policies of uh, the last several years, we had a temporarily generous welfare state. The bargaining power of workers has been increased because of very tight labor markets. The inflation and the higher interest rates have uh, hit elite wealth to some degree. Does this change anything or is this all a blip that's going to disappear and go back to the old way? Unfortunately, it was a blip. If you look at real wages of median workers, they did increase during the period of 2020-21. But after that, it was all eaten up by inflation. So real wages have collapsed back again. And that's the problem because real wages have stopped growing in late 1970s. There has been ups and downs, a lot of downs. The unskilled workers, their wages, for example, today are worse than they were in the 1970s in real terms. So we now are in crisis. I gave the first talk about this research in 2008, and then for the next uh, 12 years, I periodically would give this talk to an academic audience, and I would just say, no, we are still, all the trends are still developing in the wrong direction. We are still on the road to crisis. And crisis actually uh, happened. It became very clear in 2020, especially uh, January 6, 2021. And then we have an outbreak of a lot of violence. Now it seems to have subsided a little bit. But this is a false uh, sign because none of the drivers, none of the structural drivers for crisis have been addressed. So we just talked about uh, wages. The wages still continue to stagnate. The wealth pump is still operating. So extra, all the extra fruits of economic growth go not to workers, but to economic elites. And we have very serious problem with the literal production. The number of super wealthy people have not decreased in the United States. In any way, it takes Typically, it's not going to happen in one year unless we have a really violent, transformative social revolution. Typically, it takes many years, even decades, to really reverse those structural trends driving instability. And I just don't see that we have done anything at the political level. 
Well, let's just give you one example. The minimum wage is still, what, 725, right? It's been losing purchasing power quite dramatically, but it has not been increased. Even the Democratic president, for some reason, doesn't think that this is an important uh, thing to do. Now, you see the revolutionary impulses in this society coming from the populist right, like Tucker Carlson, the National Conservatives, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley. What exactly is their popular base? Is it really the working class? Or as one analysis of the 2016 election put it, the locally rich but nationally poor, or use Marxist terminology, uh, the base of the Republican Party or this uh, populist right looks to be a really enraged provincial petty bourgeoisie, uh, provincial elites who resent the metropolitans, but who wouldn't support an increase in the minimum wage or the unionization rate. So what are the underlying social dynamics for this revolutionary right? And what kind of society do you think uh, they would lead to should they uh, gain some kind of power? We've seen uh, some of that. In 2016, Donald Trump became president, and he did uh, some things uh, that were aimed to ameliorate the conditions of the, of the working class, such as trying to return some of the industry back uh, to the United States, which wasn't terribly effective anyway. But um, the first thing uh, his administration did was give another tax break to the rich. This is not really a way to to turn off the wealth pump and, uh, and get United States back on some kind of a sustainable socialist sustainable trajectory. But also think about it. The, yeah, who is the working class? The working class in the United States is the best definition is the 60% of the population who don't have college degrees. And uh, the huge majority of them uh, does vote for populists, right? Being populist, populists, but also they're left being populists like Bernie Sanders. Of course, Bernie Sanders is no revolutionary and he, you know, is quite disciplined in following what the Democratic uh, Party leaders decide on. That's why I see the more potential for some kind of a revolutionary outcome on the right, because the right-wing populists are in, in the process of taking over the Republican Party. By the way, remember that Republican Party did start as a revolutionary party. It was the party of the northern capitalists who were chafing under the rule of the southern aristocracy. In a way, the Republican Party, if this takeover by right-wing populists is successful, would be returning to its revolutionary roots. <laughs> of course, these are the people who don't want slavery taught in schools, though. <laughs> What about uh, the international role of the U.S., the gradual decline in American power globally? How does this figure into your model? It figures because having an empire is a way to flatten the curve, so to speak. Let me give you an example. So during I was I referred to the Chartist era in the British Empire, that's the middle of the 19th century, when they avoided revolution. This was done mainly, the reason was because, again, the prosocial elites persuaded the rest of them to do the necessary reforms. But they were helped along by the fact that Britain had an empire. And so, first of all, they shipped millions of uh, common people outside of England, uh, well, the British Isles. They went to Australia, some went to United States. And what that did, that reduced the labor oversupply, which helped to increase the worker wages. And even more importantly, they shipped quite a lot of surplus elites to the positions in the British Empire. So United States, in a way, uh, because many people don't like to call United States empire, but having this world hegemony, in fact, does provide an outlet for some of the surplus elites. So, for example, many people don't think about it, but NGOs, non-governmental organizations is a, a good outlet to employ some of the extra people with advanced degrees. And of course, uh, many uh, United States companies are often worldwide, and that also provides a way to employ surplus elites. What I am leading to is that it looks like this hegemony is crumbling. So losing that empire would suddenly shut down that outlet for surplus elites 
and that would increase the intra-elite competition and conflict within the United States quite substantially. And finally, is there a way to avoid uh, this cycle of disintegration and crisis that uh, you identify? Yes, um, and we know that historically some societies did manage to do that, and we can learn from that. It doesn't mean that we have to do exactly the same thing that the New Deal reforms had done. The United States today is a very different country from the United States of 100 years ago. But we can learn from history. And how do we do that, by the way? This is where, let's circle back to where we started from. Why do we need the science of history? That's because human societies are just complex societies with characterized by nonlinear feedbacks. You have to have a mathematical apparatus to really capture those nonlinear feedbacks in order to be able to calculate and avoid unintended and undesirable consequences. Essentially, that's what we need to do. We need to approach this problem as engineers approach problems to identify the deep causes of instability, which is what we have already done, but then also try different solutions using the modeling approach first before implementing them and seeing how well they work. But in principle, this is possible and can be done. So we need to turn off the wealth pump uh, and improve the well-being of the, uh, the poor and the working class. Yes, that's the first thing. And when we do that, eventually, that also uh, will help with the elitor production. As what happened after the 1930s, the numbers of millionaires in the United States declined, their wealth declined, and the, at the same time, the worker wages grew together with the economy until 1970s. Now is a complexity scientist, Peter Turchin, author of End Times, just out from Penguin. Let's go out with this, some of Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, performed by Daniel Barenboim, Lubin Yuradnov, Albert Tatar, and Claude Dessoumont. He wrote it while he was a German prisoner of war in 1941, and it was first played by him and some fellow POWs in the prison camp. Till next week, bye. (laughs) 